calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Infected is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash infected. Chapter 41. Howdy, neighbor. Al Turner pounded his heel into the floor. He'd had just about enough of this shit. He pounded again, and the yelling stopped. He absently scratched his ample, hairy gut, then slid a hand into his boxers to scratch his sweaty ass. Friggin' hemorrhoids were killing him. They could put a man in the moon, but they couldn't make your asshole stop burning. Figures. What the hell had gotten into that kid? screaming his head off like that. The guy had always been so quiet, Al rarely gave him a second thought. Well, not since the kid had moved in, anyway, and Al had found out that scary Perry Dossie lived right below him. Al introduced himself, had Dossie sign a football for his nephew and a couple U of M shirts for himself. Dossie had smiled, as if he were surprised that someone would want his autograph. The smile faded when Al asked him to sign the Rose Bowl shirt. Now, that had probably been a little crude, but then again, Al didn't exactly subscribe to the Miss Manor school of thinking, right? He never expected Dossie to be so huge. Sure, football players all looked big on TV, but to stand next to them was another thing entirely. That kid was a fucking monster. Al had briefly entertained the thought that he and Perry could hit the bar every Saturday during football season, maybe hang out on Sundays to watch the games. Wouldn't Jerry at work be jealous of that? Al Turner, hanging out just as casual as you please with one of, if not the, greatest linebacker to ever wear the maize and blue. But that had changed when he met the kid. Just standing next to Dossie made Al feel like a seven-year-old. He didn't want to drink beers with that freak in nature. It was like those science shows on Big Cats. Find a watch on TV as long as you didn't have to meet one face-to-face in the fucking jungle. Al twitched as his asshole flared with another round of burning. Felt like a goddamn red-hot poker was jammed in there. He grimaced and scratched. This shit could piss off the Pope, and Dossie's screaming fits weren't helping his mood. Chapter 42. The Local Yokels In Dew's experience, local cops rarely looked like happy campers. These particular local cops 
Well, they looked downright pissed. Three Ann Arbor police cruisers were parked in front of Gwen's house. They'd pulled right up on the lawn and sidewalk, passing the three gray vans that had parked on the curb. The former occupants of those cars stood on the sidewalk and on the snow-trampled yard, staring up at a pair of men dressed in urban camouflage and holding P90s. Dew had told the four men in Squad 1 to lose the rackle suits and take positions at the entrances, two at the front, two at the back. Pissed-off local cops always looked like genuine badasses, but Dew's boys looked like they'd kill a man just as casually as they'd squeeze out a fart. The six Ann Arbor locals were ticked because they couldn't enter the house. They'd been told jack shit. All they knew was that there were some definite fatalities on their turf, and some government guy wouldn't let them do their job. Five cars had responded already. The three parked in front, plus one at each end of Cherry Street, rerouting all traffic. A blue Ford slipped slowly past the east roadblock and pulled up to the house. A thick-chested man wearing a brown polyester sport jacket got out and stomped towards Dew. Maybe 50, maybe 55. This guy didn't look like a happy camper either. He had a jaw so pronounced and rounded that he could have passed as a cartoon character. Are you Agent Dew Phillips? Dew nodded. I'm Detective Bob Zimmer, Ann Arbor Police. Dew shook Zimmer's hand. Where's the chief, Bob? He's out of town at a terrorism training conference, Zimmer said. I'm in charge. A terrorism training conference. Damn, talk about your irony. Look, Phillips, I don't know what the fuck is going on here, and I'm having a donkey shit of a day. I just got called to a house that had a gas explosion. Mother and son are dead. On the way there, I get calls from the chief, then the mayor telling me some feds are running the show, that some government asshole named Dew Phillips is in charge. Mayor called me an asshole? The governor I can understand, but the mayor? I'm hurt. Zimmer blinked a few times. Are you making a joke? Oh, just a little one. Now's not the time, mister, Zimmer said. Then I get to this lady's house. There's four of those feds in chemical suits saying they have to wait for the fire to die down so they can go through it. Then I get a call from the motherfucking Attorney General of the fucking United States of fucking America. And then I hear you've locked down another house and won't let my men in. That's a lot of phone time, Bob. Hope you didn't use up your minutes. Zimmer's eyes narrowed. You'd best quit your joking, Phillips. Dew smiled. Gallows humor. Forgive me. If I don't laugh, I'll cry or something like that. So you've made some calls, you've talked to some people, and you understand that I have authority here, right? Zimmer nodded. Yeah, but tell me what's happening in this house. We've heard multiple fatalities. College kids. What the fuck happened here? You don't need to know that. The detective took a step forward until he was almost nose to nose with Dew. The sudden move took Dew by surprise, but he stood his ground. Fuck you, Phillips, Zimmer whispered, quiet enough that he wouldn't be heard by the local cop standing only 15 feet away. I don't care who called me. The chief, he's a nice guy, and he'd cooperate. Do whatever you want to tell him to do, but me, I'm stupid, and I like to pick fights I can't win. That saying must look great on your Christmas cards. How about this one? My name's Bob Zimmer, and I dream of getting fired. Zimmer just smiled. I'm old. 
I own my own house, and I invested wisely. You have me fired, and I get to go fishing every damn day. Now, this may be a shock to you, on account of my obviously cosmopolitan nature and all, but I don't exactly get a daily how-you-do call from the Attorney General. I want to know the danger level to my boys, and to this town, and I want to know now. If anything else could go wrong, here it was. A man do couldn't bully. The guy wanted to protect his men first, worry about his career second. Do knew he didn't have to say Jack to Zimmer. Shouldn't say Jack to Zimmer. But they already had two cases in Ann Arbor. If this was the place the shit would hit the fan, Do wanted allies who knew the terrain. Do took a half-step back to end the face-to-face stalemate. It's bad, Bob. Real bad. You got six dead kids in that house. Zimmer's lip curled up in a snarl. He also kept his voice low, a quid pro quo that instantly showed he'd keep most of the information to himself. Six. This is another little joke. Now's the time to say gotcha. Dew shook his head. Six. Four by gunshot, possibly tortured first. One other tortured for sure, probably killed with a hammer to the head. Jesus H. Christ. That's five. The sixth? The gunman did himself, Dew said, then felt a surge of inspiration. We don't know if he acted alone. Are you telling me there's someone else out there? That why your men were at the other house? We don't know for sure. As soon as we get more information on that, we'll let you know. And why are the feds involved? The dead gunman inside may have connections to a terrorist cell. We think he was building a bomb. Maybe the other kids in the house found out, or maybe they were part of it. And what did this terrorist cell want with a soccer mom and her son? We don't know. You gotta give me more than that. No, Bob, I sure as fuck don't. I've already stuck my neck out giving you this much, so stop pushing me. Zimmer looked away, then nodded. Okay, so what do you need from us? We need another hour. Then the scene is all yours. There'll be another car here shortly, an agent, two science types to make sure there's no biocontaminants inside the house. Biocontaminants? Like anthrax and shit? Dew shook his head. We don't know. We're setting up a temp biohazard lab at the university hospital. We're taking at least one of the bodies there. Once the eggheads are done with their sweep, you can ID the kids and call the parents. The muscles in Zimmer's massive jaw twitched. We'll provide whatever support you need, and if you find the motherfucker who's responsible for this, well, we'd be just plain happy to take care of him. Chapter 43 The Poison Pill, Part 2 The triangle on the collarbone no longer functioned. The fork had done too much damage, and the seedling simply shut down. When it died, it stopped making the chemical that maintained the crusty cap atop the reader balls. The deadly catalyst inside each ball kept eating at the cap, but now there was nothing to replace the material that dissolved away. One by one, the reader balls burst, spilling the catalyst into the triangle's body. The catalyst caused two reactions. First, it dissolved cellulose. Second, it caused apoptosis. 
Apoptosis means the cells of the body self-destruct. Normally, this is a good thing. Billions of cells choose to self-destruct every day because they are damaged, infected, or their usefulness is at an end. The process can also be triggered by forces outside the cell, such as the immune system. Every cell in the body carries this self-destruct code. The catalyst turned on that code in every cell it touched. When those cells dissolved and released their cytoplasm into the surrounding area, they passed on this self-destruct signal. The result? Liquefaction. It started slowly, a few cells here and there, but each dead cell compromised the cells around it, creating an exponential increase that within 48 hours would dissolve an entire human body. Fortunately for the host, the remaining triangles kept producing the chemical that not only replenished their individual reader ball caps, it also counteracted most of the apoptosis chain reaction in the body. Unfortunately for the host, however, the concentration of the catalyst in his collarbone was too strong to be stopped. There, the cellulose slowly dissolved, the cells slowly destroyed themselves, and the liquefaction began. And so did the rotting. Chapter 44. Impressionism. Come on, doctor, Clarence Otto said, his voice tinny in her suit's headphones. Suck it up. Now isn't the time for you to go all weak on me. Margaret made it out of the living room, but only with the help of Agent Clarence Otto's strong arm. He also wore a rackle suit, the plastics zip-zipping against each other as he helped her walk. She'd seen plenty of dead bodies, but the three bloated college kids in the living room, tied to those chairs, their faces swollen, bluish-green skin, all of it was getting to be too much. And right after that little boy, that infested, crazy, sad little boy, burning himself alive. The only good news was that Dew's men had been able to cover that one up. Just a gas leak, nothing to see here except for two dead bodies. Move along, please. Amos had taken the little girl to the temp biohazard lab at the university hospital. Margaret could only imagine the child's fear. They were trying to reach the father, but no luck yet. Amos would interview her and get what information they could, but at the end of the day, she was just a little girl who didn't even understand that her mother had been dead for two days. Margaret clumsily shuffled through six photos, pictures of faces blown up from college ID shots, six smiling faces, faces that would never smile again. One of those photos made her pause. The others had a posed smile, but this one showed a genuine laugh. It was a rarity, an excellent ID picture that captured someone's real personality. The name on the bottom read, Get Gwyn, the killer. A tap on her shoulder. She turned to look at Dew Phillips. Once again, he wasn't wearing a suit. The sole unprotected person in a house full of rackle-covered soldiers and agents. I already got pictures of all this shit. Come upstairs. I figure you'll want to see this. Otto and Margaret walked up the creaking stairs and followed Dew into a bedroom. Inside, a rackle-wearing photographer took endless shots of a body tied to a chair. This one wasn't as bloated as the others. Clearly, a more recent kill. But the missing hands, the missing feet, the hammer sticking out of the skull, the pitted black skeleton lying on the floor, 
When would this end? Would it end at all? I'm not talking about that, Dew said, pointing to the skeleton. I'm talking about those. He jerked his thumb to the other side of the room, to the wall. Sketches and paintings covered the wall. She turned quickly, taking in the whole room in a new light. Paintings, sketches everywhere. This was the room of an artist. She turned back to the far wall. Three canvas paintings dominated the wall, all two feet by three feet. The first, a close-up of that pyramid thing from the back of an American $1 bill. The highly detailed painting showed the circle, all done in shades of green. Someone had tacked a dollar bill to the wall, backside facing, obviously for comparison. Two things immediately stood out. The first was the glowing eye atop the pyramid. There wasn't one triangular eye, but three lined up corner to corner, so that the three glowing eyes made for one larger triangle. Their bases made yet another triangle of negative space. The other change was the Latin phrase in the banner below the pyramid, what should have read, Novus Ordo Seclorum, or New Order of the Ages, instead read, E Unum Pluribus, the classic motto of the Founding Fathers, from many, one. The second painting looked more rushed, not as detailed. Black paint on the white canvas. Two stylized trees, maybe oaks or maples, reaching their branches towards each other. Between them, on the ground, a single blue triangle. The third painting, right in the center of the wall. That one stunned her. Bodies twisted together. Well, no, not all bodies. Some body parts. Here, a hand severed at the elbow. There, a thigh, torn free from both hip and knee, strands of ragged flesh, dripping half-coagulated blood streamers towards the ground. Horrid, twisted bodies, bound together with coils of razor wire that sliced bloody notches and tan skin. Triangles adorned all the bodies in the body parts. Blue-black, more like textured tattoos than something that was part of the skin or under the skin. A few faces looked out, some dead, some living and screaming. A strand of razor wire pulled tightly against the open mouth of a man, his eyes scrunched tight in agony. The bodies acted like some kind of building material, creating an arch made of agony, fear, and death. The arch rose up and gently curved to the right, off the canvas. Margaret found herself looking beyond the canvas, her mind subconsciously trying to fill in the curve's path. In the background of the scene, she made out the descending leg of another arch. Multiple arches, at least two, but there might be many more outside the frame's reference. She suddenly realized that two of the faces, and judging by the skin tone many of the body parts, were Gitwin himself. This is your self-portrait, Margaret said. This is what you did with your time, before you killed all those kids. That's Gitwin? Otto asked. You're sure? Margaret handed him the photo. Son of a bitch, Otto said, as he looked from the painting to the photo and back again. Damn, doctor, you got sharp eyes. Okay. So if that's Gwen, who are the other people? Margaret nodded inside her rackle suit. She was getting used to Otto's ability to ask the obvious question, make the simple connection that she and Amos sometimes didn't see. Oh my God, Margaret said. She pointed to one of the faces, high up on the arch. This one was upside down, 
connected to a white man's body, whose head and shoulders were on the canvas, but whose feet extended beyond the frame. Is that Martin Brubaker? At the sound of the name, Dew hurried over. He leaned close to the canvas. Well, goddamn, that is the little psycho. How the fuck did Gwen know that guy? Margaret shook her head. I don't think he did, do. Of course he did. I'm looking right at Brubaker's face right there. The kid painted it and that's that. Is that Gary Leland? Otto said, pointing again to the canvas. Margaret and Dew both leaned close. Holy, Holy shit. shit. Margaret waved the photographer over. I need shots of this, the whole thing, and get all the detail. And use a new disc. I'm taking it with me. She turned to leave, then stopped. Something about that dollar pyramid bothered her. She turned and walked toward it, until she was only a foot from the painting. Something about the Latin phrase. Gwen had painted the phrase, E unum pluribus. But that wasn't right. In Latin, from many, one, was E pluribus unum. Switch the phrase around to E unum pluribus, and what did you have? From one, many. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 45, The Living Room Floor He didn't know who sang the song, but he knew the words. Someone knocking at the door, somebody ringing the bell. Someone knocking at the door, somebody ringing the bell. Do me a favor, open the door, and let him in. Perry found himself in a dark hallway, 
the lilting melody filling the air with not only sound, but also a warning. The place seemed alive, pulsating, throbbing with a shadowy warmth. It seemed more like a throat than a hallway. At the hall's end stood a single door made of a spongy, rotten green wood, covered with a vile mucal slime. The door thumped in time with his own heartbeat. It was a living thing, or maybe had been living once, or maybe, maybe it was waiting for its chance to live. He knew it was a dream, but it still scared him shitless. In a life where waking hours are draped in the costume of horrid nightmare, where reality has suddenly become questionable, it's easy to be scared by dreams. Perry walked toward the door. Something unspeakable lay behind it. Something wet. Something hot. Something waiting for a chance to rage, to murder, to dominate. He reached for the handle, and the handle reached for him. It was a long, thick black tentacle, wrapping around his arm, pulling him into the spongy green wood. Perry fought, but for all his might, he was yanked forward like a child by an angry father. The door didn't open. It sucked him in, joyous in a sudden meal of body and mind. The green wood engulfed him, and the dank rot caressed him. Perry tried to scream, but the oozing tentacle forced its way into his mouth, cutting off all sound, cutting off all air. The door enveloped him, held him motionless. Mindless terror pulled at him, dragging his sanity under. When he awoke, the fork remained stuck in his shoulder. The sweatshirt had tried to pull back to its natural position, catching on the fork and pushing it at an angle. The end of the utensil rested against his cheekbone. The wound didn't hurt because it was completely numb. He didn't know how long he'd been out. He grimaced as he grabbed the fork with his right hand and gently removed it from his trapezius. It made a wet, sucking sound as it came out. Thick trickles of blood coursed down his collarbone and curled under his armpit. The front of his sweatshirt had changed from white to bright red, with thin streaks of the dark purple. The stab wound alone wouldn't have been that bad, but twisting the fork had ripped open a large chunk of flesh. He gently fingered the wound, trying to ascertain the damage without setting off the pain button. His fingers also hit the corpse of the triangle, which was no longer firm, but soft and pliable. The hooks of this one were undoubtedly still on his body, maybe wrapped around his collarbone, maybe wrapped around a rib or even his sternum. If that was the case, ripping it out might cause one of the hooks to puncture a lung, or even his heart. That wasn't an option. But it was dead, over which he felt an indescribably sick satisfaction. The fact that he would have to carry a corpse around embedded in his shoulder, however, tugged at the back of his mind, tweaking at the last vestiges of normality clinging to his tortured soul. He carefully stood up and hopped to the bathroom. His ruined leg didn't hurt as much now, but it still throbbed complaint. Too bad he couldn't ride this game out on the bench. Let one of the second stringers come in and fill his position. Play through the pain. Rub some dirt on it and get back in there. Sacrifice your body. Lines of dried brown blood patterned the linoleum floor. Chunks of orangish skin still floated in the tub, although the water level had dropped. He could tell the original depth, by the tub ring left from tiny scab flex. Blood trickled from his shoulder. He grabbed the bottle of hydrogen peroxide from the cabinet behind the bathroom mirror. The bottle was almost empty, 
just enough left to clean the wound. Setting it down on the counter, he tried to pull off his sweatshirt, but a shooting pain in his left shoulder stopped him. He slowly raised the arm. It was sore and painful, but it still worked, thank God. He clumsily peeled off the blood-wet sweatshirt using just his right arm, then dropped it on the floor and kicked it into the corner where he didn't have to look at it. Perry wanted a shower, but he didn't want to clean the tub, and he was too grossed out by the floating scabs to stand in the ankle-deep water. He'd have to make do. He grabbed a clean washcloth out from under the sink. He wasn't about to use anything that had touched the scabs or the starting five. Only now, it wasn't the starting five anymore, was it? Perry smiled with a small victory. Now, they were four. The Four Horsemen. The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. His smile vanished. The new name didn't exactly make him feel any better. His head pulsed like a dying star. He wet the white washcloth and tried to wipe the smeared blood off his chest, ribs, shoulder, and out from under his armpit. He dabbed at the wound itself. The washcloth quickly turned a sick shade of pink. The wound didn't look all that bad. The triangle, however, looked awful. Its face was ripped open along with the skin that had covered it. At first, it was hard to tell the difference between his flesh and the flesh of the dead triangle, but after looking closely, he could see that the thing's tissue was paler than his own, a gray-pink fading to white. It sure didn't look healthy. But then again, Perry figured if he'd been stabbed to death with a fork, he wouldn't look that great either. He poured peroxide over the wound. Most of it ran quickly down his chest to soak into his pants and underwear. It was chilly. He didn't care. He dabbed at the fizzing wound with the washcloth. He had only three band-aids. That would be just enough to cover the wound. He pinched together the ripped skin over the triangle's dead head, then used the band-aids like sutures to pin everything down. The white, absorbent patches on the tan strips instantly turned pink. It was just superficial blood now. It would clot up in only a minute or two. The smell of band-aids briefly lifted his spirits. That smell carried a childhood association, the feeling that you were done hurting. When he was a kid, he'd get cut or scraped, he'd bleed, and his mom would put a band-aid on it. Whether it was the band-aid or the TLC, the pain would be greatly reduced and he'd be back to playtime in nothing flat. Unless, of course, his father wanted to teach him a lesson about crying. Signs of weakness were not allowed in the Dossie household. He couldn't count the number of beatings prefaced by his father's angry declaration, I'll give you something to cry about. Despite the pain, the Band-Aids did provide a little positive energy. The plastic scent filled his nostrils, and he couldn't help but relax a bit. As he grew calm, he realized that it was quiet. Not just in the empty apartment, but in his head. There was no fuzzy noise, no lumpy sound, not even a little bit of static. There was nothing. He didn't bother to kid himself that they were all dead. He could still feel them. He felt a low buzz at the back of his skull. They weren't dead, but it felt different. Maybe they were asleep. If they were asleep, could he call someone? The cops? Maybe the FBI? The little bastards were deathly afraid of people in uniform. What kind of uniform Perry didn't know? If they were out there, he could try something. He had to try. Hello? Perry whispered, testing the waters. Fellas, are you there? Nothing. 
His mind raced like a wind-up toy that bounced off wall after wall, moving around quickly but with nowhere to go. He had to think. His cell phone was the obvious choice. It wasn't like he could get in his car and drive away from the danger. But who to call? Just how many people knew about these triangles? Call who? The FBI? The CIA? There was obviously an airtight lid on leaks to the media regarding this situation, or he'd have heard about it long ago. He hopped quietly to the kitchen table and grabbed his cell phone. He hopped back to the couch and pulled the phone book out from under the end table. He started to flip to government agencies in the yellow pages. Then inspiration hit him. He quickly turned to the red pages, the alphabetical listing of all the businesses in the area. He flipped to the T's. There they were. There were two entries. Triangle Fence Company in Ypsilanti and Triangle Mobile Home Sales in Ann Arbor. Now who the fuck would name a business Triangle? What sense did that make? There had to be a connection. One or both of these had to be government fronts. That made sense. That made perfect sense. People in Perry's predicament were sooner or later were going to pick up the phone and try to find help. And wouldn't everybody get the hunch to see if anything was named Triangle in the phone book? And the government had to be ready to jump on the situation, so they probably had an office in every decent-sized town in the country, or at least in the area of the invasion. So people would call, and then the Triangle Fence boys would come out in their Triangle Fence shirts with Bob and Lou stitched over the Triangle Fence Company patch on their left breast for effect so none of the locals would think anything of it, because all repair installation guys have their name on their shirt. They would come into the house and quietly take Perry out to the van and drive him somewhere with men in white lab coats who would quickly and painlessly take the triangles out of Perry's body. Sure, he'd be sworn to secrecy and all, but that was a small price to pay. This was a chance. This was hope. If nothing else, it was an opportunity to make sure that these little fuckers got what they deserved. He opened his cell phone and dialed. A woman's pleasant voice answered, Triangle Fence Company? Perry's words were a whisper, yet each syllable sounded cacophonously loud in the quiet apartment. Um, yes. I need help with... with... He grasped for words. Should he come out and ask? What should he say? Was the secretary in on it? Was his phone bugged? Help with what, sir? Perry quickly and quietly folded the phone, hanging up without so much as a click. Just how was he supposed to ask? Was there a code word? His phone could be bugged. If he asked for help, would the triangles know somehow? Would they punish him? Stop it, he thought. How could they have bugged my phone? They don't even have arms. And they're not testing me. They can't be. They're going to kill me anyways. They wouldn't be testing my loyalty or anything when I've already killed three of them. That's not logical. Think, man. Tune them out. Think. Perry breathed with slow control. A choking feeling of anxiety circled his consciousness. He might have only moments left in his big chance. And if the phone was bugged, it meant that someone knew of his condition and wasn't going to do anything about it, which meant that any call he made was a waste of time anyway. He had to calm down and act now if he had any chance for survival. Time was running out. He opened the phone again, this time dialing Triangle Mobile Home Sales. It only made sense. Of course it would be the mobile home place. They could drive out in an RV. You could hop in for a test drive and off you went. None of your neighbors would be the wiser. Not even a little bit suspicious. Yeah, it all made sense now. Triangle Mobile Homes. This was more like it. Yes, 
Perry said quietly, cupping the phone to his chin with his free hand. Uh, I was wondering if you could help me. Well, that depends on what you need help with. What can we do you for? Depends on what you need help with, the man had said. Now, why would he say that? This had to be the right one. Had to be. I had seven to start with, but I got three. I think the others are still growing. I don't know how much longer I have. Excuse me, seven what? Seven triangles. Triangles. Yes, that's right. Perry fidgeted in his seat, as if his body couldn't contain the renewed energy coursing through his veins. You've got to help me. Tell me it's not too late for me. Mister, I'm afraid I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Help you with what? The triangles, man. Perry didn't hear his voice rising in volume. Stop playing games. I don't know your fucking code or keyword or whatever. I'm not James Bond, okay? All I know is that these things are growing in me and I can't stop them. Man, fuck your password shit. Just put some people in one of those mobile homes and get them over here. Perry's blood went cold as he heard low-volume buzzing in his brain. It was softer than he'd ever felt before, but it was there. The triangles were waking up. Mister, I don't have time for these games, and I don't appreciate I'm you. not fucking around here. God damn it. I'm out of time. I'm out of time. You gotta get- Who are you talking to? Perry's heart lurched in his chest. Adrenaline shot through his body. He reactively flung the cell phone across the room where it landed softly in the carpet. Panic clutched at him as if he were a rabbit frozen in the headlights of an onrushing semi. Who are you talking to? No one. I- was just talking to myself, that's all. Why are you talking to yourself? No reason, okay? Just drop it. Perry hopped up and moved to the bathroom. Suddenly, he needed to piss very badly. He felt the high-pitched buzz in his head, loud and intense. They were searching, and it was stronger than before. He stopped at the bathroom door, mentally grasping for a way to avoid what he knew had to be coming. The mind scream. He had to get that out of his thoughts. A song. Think of a song. Something intense. Something from Rage Against the Machine. Bomb track. Perry's brow furrowed as he focused his concentration on the song. Burn, burn, yes you're gonna burn, were the only words he could remember. Perry thought it as loudly as he could, not allowing anything else to enter his brain. Burn, burn, yes you're gonna burn. He let the words of Rage's singer, Zack de la Roca ripped through his mind as if he were at a concert, drunk out of his gourd, swarming with thousands of other people in a violent mosh pit. Why did you kill? Perry was concentrating so hard, he almost didn't register the question. Why, 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 why? He couldn't believe it. They wanted to know why he'd killed the three triangles. Fury welled up inside him, pushing aside his concentration, drowning his fear, crushing his panic. They had the audacity to ask why. Why, 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 why? Because he was in me. What other fucking reason do I need? He was inside my body and I wanted him out. I want you all out. He wasn't hurting you, neither are we. Not hurting me. I can barely walk. My shoulder is fucked up and my house is covered with blood. My blood. Our blood too, you did it to yourself. Fuck you, you little cocksuckers. I didn't do it to myself. I have to get you guys out of me before you eat me up from the inside. I may look like the amazing walking incubator to you, but it's not going to happen. Calm down, relax, calm down, relax. Relax? Sure I'll relax when the rest of you fucks are dead. Somewhere in his weary mind, he realized that his rage had boiled over, slipped beyond his control. He wanted to hit something, anything, hit something and break it into a million pieces. 
If I have to cut myself into chunks to get every last one of you, I'll do it and I'll laugh. You hear me? I'll laugh my ass off the whole time. Calm down, someone is coming, calm down. No one's coming, you bastards! He shook with unbridled, primitive fury. He made little hops to keep his balance. Someone is here, calm down, calm down, calm down! Three knocks on the door ended the debate. You have been listening to Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God. And we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.